the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. And Hello and welcome to another episode of Sake on Air. The podcast that takes you on a journey of discovery into the world of sake, shochu, and let's not forget our mori as well. And today we are delighted to welcome Oliver Hilton Johnson. He's a good friend of mine, actually. We've known each other quite a long time. We have. Yeah. And uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of your regular uh, co-hosts, and I'm also joined by two other uh, regular co-hosts. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Sure. Thanks, Chris. Um, this is Marie. And this is Justin. Well, where should we start? Could you briefly sort of introduce yourself? Tell us about um, Tengusake. Of course. For our listeners that don't know. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So my name's Ollie Hilton Johnson, um, and I'd just like to say thank you very much for extending the invitation to me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to uh, talk to you all. Um, I uh, am the director, founder of a company called Tengusake, which is a UK-based. Uh, import company. Those of those of your listeners that are based in perhaps the states or Canada or other countries will either be heartened or dismayed to learn that in the UK you can import, distribute, and retail all under the same banner. So I do all three of those things. There's no need for different um, bodies to do those. I mean, when I go to places like the states or Canada, which is even more restrictive, um, it's mind-boggling how complex and uh, difficult and the myriad of uh, legislative hurdles that mm. are in all these different countries and uh, my heart goes out to the poor people <laughs> that have to deal with all of that um, because in the UK it's very very easy a very simple case in point is if you, for me if I want to bring in a sake mm. just to trial it mm. I can just bring in a case no, nothing. I just got to put a nice label on it, a back label to say who imports it, and that's it. I don't need to get it checked by anyone. I don't need to run it past. No chemical analysis. No nothing. Just bring in a case, check it out. That was great. Bring in some more. If I didn't like it, or the market didn't like it, get rid of it. Whereas in somewhere like the states, that would be almost impossible yeah. because of the upfront overheads you have to do yeah. with things like cola registration and yeah. chemical analysis. So that makes the UK a very uh, reactive and dynamic market to work in, which is fun. Um, Absolutely. It's yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. Because of that, are you seeing more places get into imports and distribution in sake? Is yes and no. I mean, um, part of the challenge of um, mm. starting to import sake is that logistically it's complicated for all the reasons we know. Mm. But, you know, in short, cold chain importation and thereafter storage is not only expensive, but also uh, complicated to sort mm. out. Mm. Um, and so that's, I think that's a major hurdle to people getting into sake importing. For example, you can't just go, oh, I'll bring in a pallet, you know, mm-hmm. or I'll bring in 20 cases or whatever. You, you can't do that into, yeah. into the UK. There's no, um, you can't just take one pallet. You've got to take a full container. That's the smallest load you can yeah. take unless you fly it over. So th- there are just logistical hurdles which make it somewhat complex to just start up. So when I first started Tengu Sake, um, which was back in 2012, um, I, you know, my first shipment was a was a full reefer container, which was moderately terrifying. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah. But also terrifying yeah, on your account. And it shows up on the shore, and you go, okay, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, we, get, we, we, we got we got we got beverages. We'll just we'll just load this up here. You and know, it's and a go. large upfront 
cost. Yeah. You've right. then got to, you are committed to then sell. Um, otherwise, you're in real trouble. So, yeah, exactly. so that's one. That's probably yeah. the major reason that lots of companies aren't getting into it. Although yeah. there are, for sure, more and more companies. And one of the yeah. encouraging things is that non-Japanese related companies. Mm. So, um, Chris used to work for Tazaki Foods, that's right. big um, Japanese uh, um, wholesale company. Yep. And then put all sorts of different bits and bobs, but a lot of sake. But then there are smaller um, companies that just do sake perhaps. But they've all got a Japanese slant. Even my company, which you know is run by an Englishman, it has a Japanese slant because it only does Japanese booze. Yeah. Whereas now there are um, wine companies, for example, that are beginning right. to get into sake mm. and thinking, oh, let's add this to our portfolio. So that's very encouraging. I'm, I'm curious what inspired you to load up that first container yeah. um, but before we but before <laughs> but before we get into that just what's your background with japan yeah. and cool. what was what kind of brought you to that that pivotal moment of so i had that kind of stereotypical first experience of sake so i used to live in hokkaido um and i lived there in 1999 2000 for a year um it was um after school and before university and uh, the organization I went with, they sent volunteers all around the world to do various things from, you know, digging holes and building villages all the way through to teaching English or um, all sorts of bits and bobs. And um, I decided uh, I thought it'd be great if I went to the Far East, having never been there before. Um, and when I was, you know, making the decisions as to where I might go, I was 17 years old and I didn't really appreciate the nuance between, let's say, all these different Asian countries that were on the list of where I could go. And so I pretty much eeny, meeny, miny, mowed it and came up with Japan, mm -hmm. which was a fantastic accident. <laughs> um, but I got sent off to Hokkaido. And that first experience of sake was, you know, piping hot, poor mm. quality sake. And, you know, 18 years old, I was relatively experienced with alcohol, but still I wasn't really into spirits. And that first taste to me tasted like a spirit. Yeah because it was very hot and so you got a lot of alcohol coming up the yeah, nose yeah. it wasn't a particularly well crafted sake I don't remember what it was yeah. but mm. to my mind when I was that age it wasn't particularly well so it really put me off and it put me off for years and years and then when I came back to the UK um, someone's dad who uh, was quite into sake um, said oh you've been to Japan you lived in Japan you must love sake mm. hoping to find an ally um, and I was like no 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 I hate it and he was like well you're an idiot try this try this try this and that really kind of blew my mind. It opened me up to the, 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 the kind of spectrum um, of sake, just from, I think it was three or four different ones, and just stuff that was available in London, you know. And that really changed my mind. And from that moment, I was, I, I, I was thinking, okay, let's just try and find out a bit more about sake. And so over the next, I guess, kind of 10 years, I decided it'd be a great idea to educate myself about we, sake. We met at uh, these events, right? right? That were being held by the British Sake Association. Association. Mm. Uh, gr great, great place if you want to kind of attend any events in the UK. Absolutely. Um, we met there. And I remember, I think maybe it was the third or the fourth event, or maybe, maybe a bit further along than that. I remember you telling me, I'm going to start importing sake. And yeah. I, I thought you were crazy. I thought you were never going to do it. <laughs> and then, yeah, in 2012. Yeah, were. 2012 was when I sort of started the company. But, yeah. Um, 2013 was the first time I actually got booze into the country. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, before I was thinking of importing sake, I, I was thinking, well, maybe I'll do an izakaya or something like that. And then mm. the more I did the sums, the more yeah, you floated that out. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I thought, okay, well, sake. How am I going to get around that? How am I going to make sake cheap? I mm. know I'll import it myself. And so it just morphed into let's import sake. Yeah. Um, and it was driven by 
you know, I started when once I made that decision, or I was starting to research it and think about it. I started asking restaurants and consumers, doing a whole bunch of market research as as you do, and a lot of the restaurants that I was talking to were were, were coming up with some pretty basic, uh, complex not complaints, but things that were they were finding very difficult in, in the market. I mean, price obviously. Um, they were kind of irritated about kind of price performance. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of, you know, uh, reasonably priced, shall we say, sake in the UK. So the bottom end of the market wasn't necessarily a problem for them. But what they were finding was the kind of mid to upper range that wasn't great price. Yeah. They were paying a lot of money for sake that wasn't necessarily of that level. Yeah. And they were also irritated with how the price of a product might fluctuate kind of, you know, month to month or something mm -hmm. like that. Or they might, or a supplier might run out of stock and um, they weren't getting kind of the, the support they required. Yeah, that, that, was a, that was a big problem. Uh, it was something that the, the other companies weren't perhaps doing so well is actually supporting the restaurants when they, were, when they started carrying yeah. the sake. No kind of like going along and telling them the story about the sake, giving them something to sell to the consumers, you know, and without that support, of course, the products quickly dropped off the menu or whatever. Exactly. I mean, mm. there's, a, there's a kind of core of Jap Japanese restaurants always need sake and they need to sell sake, right? But if you want to move out of that and you mm. want to get non-Japanese people, non-Japanese uh, restaurants oh, or bars geez. or whatever excited about it, you need to A, enthuse, enthuse them about mm. the product and also reduce their risk. Mm. A lot mm. of it's about risk reduction. A lot of the work I do is about reducing the risk for the establishment that I'm trying to convince to sell sake. And if that's about, you know, stable product, shelf life, reasonable price, deals that I can do, information I can provide mm. so that they can talk to their consumers about it, ways we can work out by the glass as well as in a cocktail so they shift mm. the volume so they have no way. So it's about reducing risk for them so that they give it a go. And if it works out for them in a risk-free environment or relatively low risk environment, then they might be willing to mm. step it up and try a little bit more risk and a little bit more risk until they find the right balance for themselves. When you say risk, it's basically this idea that sake will go off if you don't. Well, there's an element of truth to that, yeah. you know, um, if well, you don't sell it straight away. Yeah, there is actually risk involved. And that, that's pretty much, and I think it's, the risk is a bigger problem, was a bigger problem at the time, maybe not so now, because there was a lack of people to actually sell the sake who knew yeah. kind of anything about sake working in the restaurant, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's absolutely right. And, sure. and, that requires the stories and the, and the uh, information behind sake to be not dumbed down, but be made digestible. Right. right. So that, you know, I think it was, um, I think it was actually on this podcast where you guys were interviewing Keith Norum yeah. 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 from Masumi. And he was, you know, just saying that he, whenever he talks about Nagano, mm. you know, everyone's like, where's Nagano? Mm. But as soon as he yep. says, Winter Olympics, yeah. boom, people get that image in their mind. And that's exactly the sort of thing, you know, mm, mm. just very simple things that um, are vivid. They don't, they're not, they're not uh, insignificant or dumbed right. down. They're yeah. just vivid so that yeah. that information can uh, get across and the kind yeah. of uh, the story and the uh, majesty and romance of sake can be communicated. Yeah. yeah. So going back to, so you're, you're about to order your first container. If mm. you could go back and tell yourself in, in the process of setting up a business where you're going to be importing, distributing, and selling sake, if you could go back and tell yourself, whatever you do, be <laughs> sure to do or not do this, that, or the other thing. What, what was a particularly useful or painful uh, lesson that you learned in that process? Hmm. Because I, I really wanted to commit to quality and I really wanted to um, ensure that everything I was selling 
would be as the brewer intended it to taste as far as I could do despite yeah. the fact yeah. it takes three months to get from point A to point B <laughs> um, it, uh, and so I was willing to sacrifice a percentage of um, the the first shipment to kind of wastage and I guess any advice I would give myself would be yeah th that that that's okay I was quite torn up about it obviously when when I had to do it at the time but I think certainly in retrospect it was a, it was an intelligent decision because it meant that the brand as in my brand Tengu Sake was you know within uh, the mind of my customers reputable and I wasn't just trying to nefariously flog old sake type thing yeah. this is specifically one of the reasons I set up the company yeah. to try and ensure that that quality and that's that's really what Tengu Sake that's what I wanted wanted it to do I'm, I'm bought from seven different breweries that have this vivid identity this USP that I can just promote then my function merely becomes one <coughs> to communicate that story and two I wanted Tengu Sake to be a kind of quality un assurance umbrella mm -hmm. do you know what I mean so that everything under my brand under the Tengu Sake brand, people could say with authority, oh, that's going to be, I know it's going to arrive in good condition, it will have a strong story, and it's good quality stuff. That's mm. kind of what I wanted my role to mm. be. One of the reasons mm. why I don't change the labels and, and things like that. Yeah, right. that's what I was actually going to, I was going to ask you, that. I think you kind of answered my question. I was going to, you said, you know, you're involved in importing, distributing, and, and sales of sake, but, you know, what is Tengu Sake? And when you set up Tengu Sake, what did, what characteristics did you define your company by? And you kind of outlined it a little bit yeah. um, there, but what were sort of the founding tenets or that you, was, that you sort of oh. set, that you set in place prior to starting that you said, these are the things that are going to define Tengu Sake, and sure. this is how we're going to define them, not just for the brewers, but then also for, yeah, um, for your sure. clients on that end as well, too. I'd be curious to hear about right. that. Because, I mean, the UK is not quite the wild west of sake market you know you're absolutely right yeah. <laughs> so it's quite a crowded market and a very sophisticated one as well so i'm curious to know right. um what were what was the sort of brand story that you have behind and tengu sake it's, it's very saturated as well i think mm. it's, it's important to point mm. out right everyone is kind so, of yeah. targeting the same part of the market which tends to be the japanese restaurants mm. right well the thing and with the getting uh, sorry the yeah. thing to get the, the i mean the japanese Restaurants provide a backbone to your business. Mm. Do you know what I mean? They're always going to need sake, mm. and once once the business is washing its face by being able to sell sake to Japanese restaurants, and I, as I say, uh, build this portfolio of kind of um, customers that provide this constant revenue stream, then you have the flexibility to be able to target other restaurants which may not necessarily be as consistent with their orders and whatnot. And so that 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 kind of I used to be an actor. And so, you know, you do the, everyone called it kind of your bread and butter work. You know, mm. you do stuff that pays the bills. And then once you've covered your your rent and your bills and all that sort of stuff, that affords you for the flexibility to be able to you pursue your You can do your, your, your creative whatever. work here. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You tolerate being the back end of a donkey in Skegness mm. for a season <laughs> yeah. in order to be able to uh, pursue, you know, Hamlet on the West yeah. End mm. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so what I wanted to do was I had got two effective effectively two um, customer bases. One is uh, business to business and one is business to consumer. So business to business, I wanted to tick off all those annoyances that they had. So mm. I make it an absolute uh, golden rule of mine to never run out of stock. Now that's very difficult to manage when it takes three months from when you order something for it to arrive. So I fly stuff. If I'm in the day out, 
I'm if I am in danger of running out of stock, I'll fly it and take the hit on on the product, which happens. <laughs> um, especially if you know a customer says, "Oh, I want to do this product by the glass." You're like, "That's awesome," but you're going to burn through X number of cases, and I've only got Y, so I'll have to fly some over. And and that was the weak point of a lot of your competitors, right? Because yeah. and not to put them down, but it's it's a fact. Because a lot of these uh, competitors were not focusing on sake. They were ordering other things in. Right. They had to wait until they could fill a container yeah, with yeah. the mm. other products, put sake in there. And having worked for one of those big suppliers, it, it was a constant frustration. Yeah. You know, customers and customers can't understand that. You no. know, they need a product. Why don't? Why can't you get it? You know, mm. and there just wasn't the demand to fill a whole container with that sake. You would have those restaurants that could pay the premium to sort of bring them in by air or whatever. But they were very few and far between. Mm. So yeah, that was the real problem, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely the right. There. And that, that, so that was definitely a kind of a tenant. I would never run out of stock. I also said I wanted to be fair on price. So I tried to price my sake as, as competitively and as fairly as possible. Because obviously with um, uh, the exchange rate, it goes up and down and bounces all around. And a lot of, a lot of my competitors just price it on that exchange rates so the mm. price goes up price goes down i just try and even it out if the price if you know exchange rate is more favorable then i get a better deal and if it worsens then they get a better deal but overall on average through the course of a couple of years it just all works out but the right. benefit is the customer is not seeing these price fluctuations mm. go up and down which irritates them massively because they don't reprint their menus that frequently. Right. So they've then mm. got to take the hit on that. And that's a massive element in, in reducing risk, like you exactly. said earlier. Yeah, mm. exactly, exactly. And, and the way they see it is, how can it be fluctuating when we pay the price of the product when it's actually imported, mm. not the time that the exchange rate is fluctuating? Mm. And if you look at the amount of time that they're actually ordering, there shouldn't be any fluctuation because things kind of balance themselves out over, over the year, for example, right? Yeah, the fiscal absolutely. year. I mean, forecasting business for any oh. F&B outlet is as difficult as it is already yeah. you know so in order for you to be able to take the guessing game out of the picture um and just set a stable and standard price for them i think just takes a huge huge headache out of the picture for yeah them. It, yeah it's not easy but I've, it's a bold choice yeah mm. i've raised my prices twice in um seven years wow so, wow that's you know, impressive that's, but yeah requires you taking the hit and and working with customers to do this that and the other but so that, that was the price thing, um, the, the consistency of supply, and then all the other gubbins, which, which fits onto uh, consumer-focused as well as restaurant-focused, but it's the intersection of that. And that's really all about education. And I wanted to choose, a, again, I wanted to create a portfolio that was intelligently curated. Do you know what I mean? So there weren't lots of mm. sakes that were similar. Um, the five brands, I wanted to give a very distinct identity um the idea when i first when i first came up with the idea of all the kind of concept i i thought of okay i'll do five breweries with five sakes from each brewery you know five sakes one at a daiginja level one at ginja level one at jimmai slash hanjoza level and one maybe sushu or meshu or, or, or this or that but kind of five just to tickle the boxes and that would give a good uh appreciation of the um of the of the style of the brewery so if Again, thinking of a consumer, there's nothing about sake. If they're like, oh, I want to try a dry style of sake, you say, well, this brewery produces predominantly dry sake, but you can try everything from a daiginja all the way through to futsushi within that. So find out where, and they can explore within that brewery. Or then if they like a particular, say they like the more fruity aromas of, of, of ginjoka, of, of ginjo aromas, then they can go there, but then choose between the other breweries and go for a richer style or a 
or a, a you know more expressive style or whatever and that would be by going between breweries that was my original uh, conceit and it, it's kind of worked out like that yeah. yeah. So what is what was your pitch to the brewers then? You only work with a handful of brewers. Yes. What was that communication like? Where you were talking about the gaps that you saw in the market that you were trying to kind of mm. worm into and and satisfy the, um, customers on that end. When you're going and talking to the producers, when you're getting the start, you say, "Look, I'm starting with a few producers, and this is what I'm doing." What was your pitch to them? And was there any feedback from them that you then took that was like, oh, this is not just what the market needs, but this is what the brewers need. So this is something I'm going to yeah. integrate into my, as you said, my sales, my education, my communication. So, um, yeah, what I did was I made a, a kind of crazy spreadsheet of lots and lots and lots and lots of different breweries and tried to taste as many of them as I could within the UK market. And then um, I tried to find out which of the breweries that I was interested in would be interested in exporting. And so from a kind of long list of about 100 different breweries, I shortlisted 20 and went to visit them all um, in a kind of month period. And uh, so the first question I always asked was, I mean, and say, what is your USP? I put it in a slightly more digestible way than that. But effectively, I'm asking them, what makes your sake different? What's yeah. your USP? And I'm always surprised the number of breweries that say, oh, it's our rice and our water. And you're like, yeah, you and every other brewery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so the, I'm, I, I'm always surprised the number of breweries that can't answer that question and don't know what that is. And so it was the people, the breweries that could answer that um, were instantly like, right, okay, cool. If you guys know what you're all about, then... I can communicate can, that. I can, yeah. I can, I can support you. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and you know, I took kind of the first mock up I had of back labels, and I I took the kind of um, I have these kind of pictograms that I do to to try and help mm. people understand what the sake is going to be like. So I showed them that, and I said, look, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to communicate your sake, but sake in general, to a non sake familiar market. This is the way I'm going to kind of do it. I don't want to mess around with your brand because. I like your brand and I want your brand to be front and center. I'm not going to be slapping Tengu Sake front labels all over your products. That's not what I'm about. I want to communicate you, your stories, yeah. your family, your ethos, your, you know, the, 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 the workers in your brewery. I want to get all that and I want to be able to communicate it. And that's basically what I, the kind of pledge I made to them. And uh, yeah, I think everyone kind of dug it. Yeah, and and it's it's worked out. Yeah, it's worked out. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious actually about sort of your approach. One, you you talked about your um your sort of symbol yes. system that you mm. established, and I would love to hear more about kind of how you put that together and sort of what inspired. I think before you do, I recommend everyone listening to go onto uh, Oliver's website. Um, it is a work of art as, as well oh, as a you. masterpiece. Mm. Uh, so t hit up tengusake.com. Um, as Oliver talks about this um, icon system that she created. Mm. So again, I, I, I kind of tried to think, okay, if I didn't know, because I remembered that journey of getting those three sakes that blew my mind and opened my, uh, opened my um, brain to the spectrum of sake and thinking, okay, well, how am I going to be able to communicate this? And the journey I went on after that. And even once I'd educated myself about sake and, under, and I understood what Jumai De Ginjo meant and all that sort of stuff, I remember just standing in front of a wall of sake in a shop in London and going, well, I still don't know what the hell any of these are going to taste like. And there's nothing on the bottle that's going to help me at all. Mm. And I thought, that's nuts. That's just absolutely crazy. There's no, 
you know, because by that point I'd realized that even within the Junmai Daiginjo category, there's massive variety and there's no guarantee it's going to be that classic Daiginjo It's going style. to be in the upper right quadrant yeah, of, the, exactly, yeah. of the SSI tasting thing. Yeah. It's, it's not necessarily going to be like that and Junmai's can be fruity and blah, 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 all this sort of stuff. And so I was like, okay, this, it, there's, there's something not quite working here. And so that's when I sat down and said, okay, let's, let me try and break down uh, what I feel as a, from a Western point of view, Western consumer, I didn't consult any kind of official literature to do it. It was just purely, I put myself in the shoes of the consumer and thought, look, if I'm standing in front of a bottle of, a sac- bottle of sake, I kind of want to know what it's going to taste like. Mm. Is it, you know, and I borrowed the, the wine lexicon to a certain degree. Mm. Is it dry or is it sweet? Is it rich or is it light? Is it, I didn't use things like full bodied. I mean, maybe when I write the descriptions, I use those words, but the, the pictograms I came up with um, are very simple things like light, uh, rich, fruity, um, fresh, which I kind of made uh, synonymous with namazake. Because um, again, I don't want to be like namazake. So I was like, what the hell's namazake? Mm. You know, or even unpasteurized sake. Yeah, so no, like, what does that mean? Um, when I, I also teach the uh, Kiki Sakeshi, the SSI international kiki sakeshi course in the uk um i should qualify that i uh there's a lovely lady called satomi um and she has the license her company and she limited have the license to run that course she just invites me along to co-present so i it's not my it's not my thing it's her thing but she very kindly asked me to co-present um but anyway we do that together and what we try to teach is you know if you're a sommelier in a restaurant and you're saying you want to introduces particular sake you know the number of times i've heard somebody go oh this is a jimmy daiginjo polished to 40 percent from niigata prefecture no one understands what the hell any of that means mm. not a single word that they understand unless they've been to japan they don't know where niigata is yeah um you know they don't know what jimmy any of these things much better you can say this is a jimmy daiginjo but then qualify what that means mm. you know Jumai Daiginjos are typified by bright tropical fruit aromas this is an atypical style it's dry crisp which is actually quite typical of the Niigata style, which is in the Northwest. So people begin to, you know, associate it with reality rather than just a series of syllables that make no sense to them. So that's what we try to do when um, we teach the Kiki Sakeshi course. And that's the same kind of ethos that I try to uh, um, imbue my sake labels and the pictogram system so that someone can pick it up and go, okay, it's going to be a fruity light sake. Great. It's going to be a rich, dry sake. Great. It's going to be a fresh and, uh, uh, I don't know, something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Something else. One of the other pictograms that I've come up with. Um, and that, that was basically it. So that you could uh, you could just identify the sake very simply through that. And I also wanted a, a filter system. Yeah. So that if people rock up to the website, they can just click, boom, I want fruity sake and all the fruity sackers come up. Yeah, fulfill that condition. Isn't that your dream come true? Yes. (laughs) Well, that's what I thought when I first saw his website. And actually, I didn't realize it was Oliver's website when I Mm. found it, to be honest with you. I found this website and it was like, wow, this is interesting. Started looking around on it, you know, filtered Mm. and got some sake to come up. And then uh, who's who's made this rather good looking website? And then, yeah, I found out it was uh, yourself. and uh, Yeah, I mean, it was a kind of a, it was a labor of love. but, But, you know, even when I started my company, my knowledge of sake was, relatively rudimentary mm. i mean i as i said i and i'd done like john's course and all that sort of stuff so i, I knew stuff mm. um but I, I still i really wanted to come at it from a kind of layperson point of view mm. um and use or create descriptors that your average person would you create have to. You have yeah. To. Yeah. Mm. yeah yeah you yeah definitely yeah. have to 
Um, oh. It's just <laughs> such a really nicely designed website. And I, I, I think I should know the answer to this. So forgive me. Mm. But for, for the um, benefit of our listeners more than anything, why Tengusaki? <laughs> um, there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, the first reason is there's kind of three reasons that I have a two syllable rule. I never name anything in Japanese more than two syllables because no Westerner can remember any more than two syllables. Mm. Um, it just doesn't work <laughs> in my experience. So I wanted something with two syllables. So I went through a whole bunch of different stuff, you know, Ronin, uh, Tengu, Ninja, blah, 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 <laughs> classic stuff out of the bag. Um, and I was thinking, well, you know, what could work? And um, I did market research all around that. Loads of people thought Ronin sounded uh, Irish, which was interesting. Mm. Um, and so uh, Tengu was one of the ones. And then, you know, I, I, I started to research more into the kind of kaiji mythology around what, what a Tengu is and all that sort mm. of stuff. And I was like, okay, it's quite cool. Um, and so I, 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 I imagined it as a kind of mischievous symbol, which would be quite fun for a booze company. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the first two reasons and then the third reason the thing that kind of sealed it for me was i was skiing in france and um i discovered a japanese restaurant there and i was like oh cool and they were doing uh um skiyaki uh, skiyaki is just amazing when you're skiing right Fine. lovely hot pot of deliciousness so i was like Sweet cool let's go yeah what's not to like so i went in there and uh, it was totally empty and there was just the owner there this very old chap who was uh, sitting at the sitting at the bar, and so over the course of the evening, I got talking to him, and um, we we had a really great time. But he w he had quite a sad story. His wife had recently passed away, and he was going to shut up shop and go back to Japan. He had enough, um, and you know business hadn't been doing so well. And you know we got progressively more drunk and uh, progressively <laughs> more pally. And then by the end of the evening, he had this mask of a tengu on the wall, um, about a foot high and about half a foot wide and he took it off the wall and he gave it to me and, which was really cool and, and at the time and, and again in, in retrospect you know really lovely um and uh that that kind of sealed it that mm. was uh, like a sign i was like okay tengu i always wondered if you'd maybe seen those cups that, i know the ones you mean yeah, yeah i hadn't trick, at that the time trick cups and i yeah. thought maybe you like the shape like a tengu and thought maybe that's where the inspiration came from but oh, a really nice story Let's go. Okay, just real quick, getting back to your sort of your your icon system, mm. has that evolved at all over time? You've had the company going for what about six years or so now. Has that changed or evolved over time? Was there did there used to be an asparagus icon, and you realize <laughs> nobody bought asparagus sake or something? I don't know. Is it, I'm just I'm just curious. Is there? Um, Although it, there is definitely sake with asparagus qualities. Oh, fully. Yeah, that's what I'm just curious. Is there? <laughs> See, that was the that was the thing I did. That was the danger I didn't want to fall into yeah. because. Once you start expanding it, yeah. you're like, well, I've done one for asparagus. Cause, cause, cause maybe our, I should do one for plums. Now there should, now there should be yeah. maybe should you lemon. Should do one for shiitake mushroom? Yeah, or? exactly, exactly. And so, but, but honestly, I mean, you do have quite a few icons. I mean, it actually, it yeah. is like, it's, like it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful system. But when yeah. you first got it, it is a little bit over. It's like, whoa, I have to, I have to, you know, I have to yeah. gauge what all yeah. of these things mean. For sure. So I'm, I'm curious if the, if you've sort of curated that or sort of so the list was longer and it was and for its first and only iteration it was it was pruned um but i have been tempted to add things as my experience and uh, uh you know um, encounters with sake have grown and i've thought okay well maybe there should but i've just kind of resisted um because i think it i think it does the job pretty well um i've, te I've been tempted to add one for nigori 
for example, mm. or cloudy. Okay. But I have another filtration system which, you know, categorizes the sake by, um, you know, Jimai Daiginjo, all that oh, sort of stuff. And okay. under that yeah. is Nigori. And I, mm. I'm just, so I'm trying, I, I do resist adding more, um, more filters mm. just because I think and it confuses. Presumably, you can look at the search data on the website, see yeah. what sort of people are looking for. And if there is maybe something that people are looking for that you don't have an icon, you know, to show them where, where that product is, for sure. then I guess you would need a, to add an icon. But For sure, for sure. What, what kind of feedback have you been receiving from people about the icon system? Uh, people really like it. People yeah. really, really like it. Yeah, they find it very intuitive and easy to use. And as I say, it just it, it does away with the necessity to understand any of the official vernacular around sake. Mm. And interestingly enough, that's being mirrored in Japan now, right? Lots of producers are moving away from the classic Mm. Yeah. system yeah, absolutely and Hopefully. i think that's something that we can we can even benefit here in the japanese market um that's something that i actually spoke about when i um helped imara-san consult with some of the restaurants for a demographic that is not particularly familiar with sake like younger people here in japan so for businesses like izakayas and in japanese bars here that cater to those demographics it benefits them to actually have their sake presented in a more layperson friendly way mm. um if you will um instead of like you saying oh this is a certain percentage of rice milling and the rice is from here and there just kind of map it out in a way that it's more intuitive it's more visual it's more graphic for exactly. people to understand um people know whether they want sweet or dry that's simple enough mm-hmm. um when they have a bit more experience they know if they want something that's a bit more aromatic and expra- extravagant or if they want something a bit more tame well that's a i mean that's a really good point the the i the pictogram system that is meant to be for those people that know nothing about mm. sake but then, like, for example, if you look at my back labels, um, it has those pictograms at the top and then, you know, kind of poetic waffle about the sake as you go down. But then as you get towards the bottom, you get all those dense all metrics. Needy, yeah. yeah, yeah. You get the uh, Nihon Shido, you get the, yeah. the acidity, right. you get the, all of that. And so the Yeah. If you know where to look for it. So, really and that's because I appreciate it. that people that do know about sake yeah. are also going to pick up the bottle and be like, well, what the hell's the rice? Right. What's yeah. the yeast? What's the acidity? And they're going to want to know that information. But it's kind of at the bottom in small print right. rather in than in order for most of the majority of the market to get to that level, they need to first be able to visually and intuitively understand what your products are. You exactly know? right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. And your naming system is fantastic. Now, I mean the names of the brands Ooh. of the sake. So you don't oh, just take the me. original brand from the brewery. Yeah. You can kind of create your own name. For right. two kind of questions. How yes. on earth do you come up with these names? I, 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 hate kind, of, it. I kind of imagine you with like... <laughs> cards pieces yep. of paper with, with words on it you just kind of randomly put them together <laughs> yeah. but they're good i mean they, they look like they've been thought through and the second thing is how, how on board are the breweries uh with, with this idea how, how were they how, how on board were they at first have you had to kind of coax them into this strategy or were they really kind of oh yeah yeah absolutely just name our sake whatever you like you know and uh, they're quite protective it can here be, in yeah. japan about brand branding so the, to answer your first question i have kind of two metaphorical boxes in my head of uh of adjectives and nouns um and i just dip into one and pull out the other and go dancing geisha oh god too too cliched and then pick out another and that's how i tried to come up with these names um and the reason i the reason i do it is because it helps with uh brand recognition each brewery i give a theme 
for example, usually based on either their style of sake or their geography or something like that. So, for example, uh, Tsuji Honten that I uh, import, they're based in Okayama. They do a lot of bodaimoto and they use almost exclusively omachi rice. So naturally, the vibe of their sake is quite rustic and uh, kind of earthy and getting towards full-bodied. And so I, I theme everything around mountains for them, you know, kind of a bit more rugged. I was going to say you themed it around rust. I was going to... Rocky Mountain? So Rocky Mountain, which is the, uh, which is the, the pasteurized Jumai, and yeah. then Mountain Stream, which is its unpasteurized yeah. version. Mm-hmm. But straight away, the, the names are somewhat evocative. So that's how I come up with the names, but I hate doing it. I really hate it because I'm rubbish at it. Um, so I have a couple of friends that are actually much better at it than me, and they give me ideas. We sit down and drink the sake, and they go, oh, Velvet Mist. I'm like, that's great. Write that down. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, But as far as with the brewers, there's been a couple of brewers who I've sent suggestions to, and they've been like, oh, okay, can we work on that? And we work on it together. Um, but mm, the majority of them are like, yeah, cool. Just, you know, run it past us. Mm. But if we like it, then we'll, we'll go for it. And most sake brands, well, maybe a brand itself has a translation. That's right. Right. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But most individual sakes don't, they may just probably called brand name oh, Jumai true. or something that's like true. that. So they don't have an individual brand for each sake. Yeah. And so I'm usually just completely conjuring the name out of nowhere. Right. That's, um, so that's what I was curious. I mean, most consumers at this point in time their sake experience is going to be pretty localized to the place or the country in which they live sure. but the naming conventions that you've established aren't universal across other markets that these products are they're not right? that is a bit of has a, that been a point of contention at all or is that something that it hasn't it hasn't i mean there have been some interesting moments it's the, in, in the internet area era when you start go, oh, what is this sake? And it's some, the same thing pops up under a different name. I and mean, now, yeah. now that information is available to people. I'm, so I'm just curious. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And that is possibly, maybe even probably a uh, weakness on my part in so much as there is a, you know, a, a, a sake in uh, the States, which doesn't have the same name as a sake I flog in the UK. But they are separate markets. So it doesn't bother me so much. At some point... Maybe we'll homogenize it, um, but for now it's okay. Yes, that is that is a fair point. But most of the time it, it, it's worked out okay. And what I always say to restaurants, the other thing that bugged me is, you know, from a consumer's point of view, they go into a restaurant they, or a bar or whatever, and they order a sake. They're like, oh, God, that was delicious. And they come back and they can't remember which bleeding sake mm-hmm. they had. It's impossible. They're not going to remember you know, a 20 right. syllable. Happens to the best of us. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so if they remember, yeah. I don't know, Rocky Mountain or whatever, that's just a nice hook that you get, you get the repeat custom. Yeah. Yeah, the, so. You know, the consumer's happy, the, um, the brewery's happy, I'm happy, the restaurant, everyone's happy. Yeah. Um, and that's why uh, predominantly I did that. But there are plenty of restaurants that don't use those names mm. at all. And they just, you know, if they're a high-end Japanese restaurant, perhaps, and they want to keep it super traditional, they just use the Japanese name. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's optional, yeah. and there are some places in London or that just oh, they'll they'll use, they'll put your product on, on their menu under the Japanese name if they've established that as their exactly. naming con- yeah, yeah, convention. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they won't top. use okay. Rocky yeah. Mountain, for example. Okay, right. and there oh, are some places that do all the Japanese stuff and put Rocky Mountain as well. And there are some places that just use Rocky Mountain. Okay, okay. Oh. it just it depends on the. I always say when you're developing a concept or a sake list or a sake solution for a particular mm-hmm. venue. There's three, I'm sure there are more, but you know, there's three things I always think of. It's, so there's traditionalism, 
right? So if you are a super high-end three-star Michelin Japanese restaurant doing Edomaya sushi, you probably want super traditional sake service. Right. Then there's the best vessel for the glass. If you're a wine bar and you're all about, you know, serving wine in the perfect vessel to get the most aroma, you probably want to do the same thing for your sake. So mm. lovely, nice, uh, ballooned, wide-necked um, uh, glasses for daiginger to get the most mm. aroma and all that sort of stuff. And then there's drama. You know, if you're a teppanyaki place and you're throwing shrimps all over the place, maybe you want your sake to come out with some sparklers. And somewhere in the middle is the right solution for an individual restaurant. You know, a bit of drama, a bit of traditionalism, something like that. Um, and so as a consequence, those names can be used or not used as the, as the place sees fit. Yeah. I would be curious, just, I'm just thinking about this right now, but it would be interesting to know if, I, I doubt this data exists, but different restaurants, sort of the average sales of, yeah. you know, of a sake that has... Yeah. very clearly defined English names yeah. mixed in with a whole bunch of other yeah. non-English or Japanese names uh, d- and sort of what those sales trends look like. That would be very would interesting be? research, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It certainly helps the uh, um, the floor staff oh, a whole heck of a lot. Oh, yeah. sure. Just to find the bottle in the fridge. Right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, to find the bottle in the fridge is a good point. I mean, especially when they look alike, right? By yeah. one brand, you get all the bottle and kind of just the labels. It's easy to get different. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's a real nightmare, isn't it? In the middle of service or whatever. I think it's quite easy for um, the Japanese, the Chinese to forget how completely impossible it is to read kanji unless you read kanji. Yeah. There's not even a hint of something you can borrow. It's just yeah, completely nothing to mm. latch on. Yeah. There are characters on there that your average Japanese person can't read on some of these. Yeah, that's true. Like, I yeah. often get asked by, by Japanese, how do you read that? Whatever. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. when I say, well, you know, it's amazing once I know how to read it, you know, it's my little party piece. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of drama, you do a bit of judging, a spot of judging as well. Yeah, not, not about a that? huge amount, but for IWC, the International Wine right. Challenge, which is the largest sake competition mm. outside of Japan. Mm. Uh, yeah, when it's in Japan, it's slightly paradoxical, because <laughs> sometimes it judges in Japan, <laughs> um, and then it doesn't become the largest outside of Japan, but it's the largest non-Japanese competition. Um, it's around about 800 entries a year, and uh, I'm a senior judge for that. Uh, and that that takes place annually, um, and there's it's it's great it's a great learning opportunity for me as well because you know there are some really amazing um, people that come over from from all over the world that know a lot about sake. Um, some of the people that sit around this very table, um, and uh, uh, not right now and talk. So <laughs> yeah. John, for example, yeah. John yeah. Gortner, he's a he's a, a a panel chair there, which is the kind of uh, it's not the most senior level. He's actually more senior than that. He's a co-chair, so he uh, yeah. he um, he's the most senior level, and um, many other um, you know Japanese uh, um, sensei, so people from the National Research Brewery or from uh, the Kobo Kyoko, the Yeast um, Association, yeah, or you know people same. that are very technical, yeah. yeah, that can come over and judge and be very uh, uh, very generous, very, very generous with their knowledge. Mm-hmm. One of the fascinating things about judging side by side with Japanese is Japanese, they tend, Japanese judges tend to start with 100 points yeah. and then knock points off, yeah. right? <laughs> you go down towards zero yeah. and don't use fluffy language. Yeah. Um, whereas Western judges start at zero and want to give points. That's right. You know, the, the Japanese system mentality. is all about 
finding fault. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. If you can't find any fault, that puts the sake in the position that you would give it medals, and then it's kind of how clear, how clean is it at that point? But with obviously the wine judging method, mm. isn't it, to add points on top to find something positive? In yeah, the, and that's one of the unique wine. things about I think the IWC is, you know, there can be some content, not contentious, but there can be some interesting points of conflict between those two uh, paradigms, but it produces a really interesting competition. Mm. It produces, um, you know, judging that is that takes both schools of thought into account. Mm. Um, and that's, I think, one of, its, one of its strong points. And you're judging sake, which is actually being sold on the market, right? Mm. Actually yes, 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 yes. On the shelves, you can't be specially a, made just for the competition. It's a big difference from the competitions that are run here in Japan, traditionally anyway. Yeah. Um, so that's a big thing. And how, kind of, how have you, how has the judging, how have the competitions kind of helped you as well on like the, the marketing side and the sales side? And obviously, sake that appears in the competition, you can't, you know, you can't use its kind of entry into the competition as a kind of a marketing strategy per se, but no. You know, no, but certainly, I mean, those sakes that are lucky enough to win um, gold medal, silver medal, bronze medal. So there's different, there's commended bronze, silver, gold, and then there are trophy winners. And those that win the trophies generally, you know, I think it does, especially in the domestic market here in Japan, but also internationally, I think it does carry some weight. And so that's you know, it's wonderful when one of your sakes wins a particular award. Um, but from my personal point of view, obviously, it's a huge learning experience, as I've just described, um, being able to talk with um, people that have you know, much more knowledge than I do. And, uh, you know, and they, you'll be like, mm, what is this? What is that? And they'll just go, boom, it's because it was an extra 36 hours on the Moroni. You're like, right, okay, cool, sweet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very specific answers, that, that, that they, which is fantastic because it's a real... Um, a real opportunity to learn but also it's great to because it's all stuff that's commercially available also good to see trends mm. that are coming through right. or um to cement in your mind the kinds of sake that you quite like and because you know at the end of the day tengu sake is my selection of sake mm. it's got my stamp on it I don't, you know, obviously I've got a commercial hat on and I'm thinking what will work within this market mm. but if I don't like it I don't sell it yeah. um, and that's it's hard to sell something you don't like. Yeah, it. absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Has the things that you have found to be that the market has responded very well to over the years has that evolved at all over time? And I'm curious, sort of, what sorts of things are getting people excited nowadays? Yeah. So the the, the London market, I would suggest, is there's there's a kind of core of people um, which are quite knowledgeable about sake and they're excited about sake. But the larger market is still pretty ignorant about sake they don't know anything about it really and they have all the common misconceptions that we we know and love yeah Yeah. yes exactly don't put down the hot sake brother (laughs) no i'm not i I love i love the only hot (laughs) it's the season for it right um and uh that core has matured certainly and expanded so there are more people within it yeah so uh when i started um Tengu Sake, I felt personally, and from my kind of market research, there's quite a lot of kind of Niigata style sake, sort of mm. Tante Karachi yeah, kind true. of style sake. Mm. And I wanted to bring other stuff in. And so I started responding to that. And that's why I kind of defined my portfolio the way I did. Then I added on other breweries to kind of fill gaps that I didn't have um, within my initial portfolio. And I still, you know, there's still gaps, obviously. I don't have a huge selection. 
and uh, I've just last year one of the breweries I work with again um, Tsuji Honten in, in Okayama the Gozenshi brand they released a, 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 a line, new lineup of sake called The Silence they did it actually two years ago but I only imported it last year and it's I, is that the one that's like named after like guitar pedals? Exactly right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. So Chiro san the, the CEO, he, he is an avid guitar player and he used to be in a rock band. And uh, he, there is actually a much more philosophical and deep reason why it's called the silence. It's all to do with, you know, negative space and ma and all this sort of mm. stuff, which is very interesting. Um, but he makes it digestible by calling it after these um, uh, uh, pedals. Uh, those particular products I don't think would have worked in the market five years ago, six mm. years ago, oh, okay. because they're very geeky. They're effectively the same Moromi. They're just either pasteurized or not pasteurized, or it's a different, you know, third of the pressing, or it's or it's that small or, factor. Yeah, kind of it's it's tiny in, in little difference. It's relatively large, but it's one. And communicating yeah. that is you've got to understand what the hell you know. Yeah. Uh, Nakadori, Orizake, oh. Namazake means. You know, you've got to understand that. And five years ago, I just don't think people would have been able to right. deal with that. Yeah. But now I feel that that core is either their level has matured, or the, the you know the the number of people within that core has expanded sufficiently to be able to tolerate that kind of level of geekery, which yeah. is exciting. Um, if you know about wine, then you have fractions in wine as well. Absolutely. So you can just kind of relate to refer to that, although it's not one hundred percent. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. Um, basically the Nakadori is referring to the middle fraction for example exactly yeah. there are lots of comparisons you can make between sake and wine there's mm. lots of things you can borrow from the wine uh, vernacular that and put into sake and which is very helpful and useful but I, I, I resist shoehorning sake into wine because mm. it's not wine no. um, and I think sometimes that goes too far um, you know they often say as a rule of thumb you know 20% of the work is done when you take delivery of um, your rice and 80% is in the, in the making. Whereas it's the kind of reverse with sake, um, with wine, with wine yeah. yeah. 80% is in the grapes and the growing and 20% in the production as, as a kind of rule of thumb. Yeah. But again, that, that, that suggests to me, you know, a lot of the time, you know, breweries fall into the trap or, or, or um, uh, retailers fall into the trap of talking about the, the rice and the yeast and all that sort of stuff. And of course those things are important, but the weight is on the the people and the and, so. and their ethos and their and how you know, it's made and how it's made and yeah. it's a shame to lose all those stories when so much of it is about that yeah. and about the, just the philosophy of the toji or about you know what he passes on or what he was taught or she was taught um, and I think that that's such a rich story and so yeah and, and you know wine is in its you know, everyone talks about how you know minimum intervention with right. wine. Sake is the opposite. It's maximum intervention. Yeah. You've got to poke it the whole time to yeah. make sure it doesn't die. Yeah. You know, so. I think before I actually working in a brewery, I had this romanticized idea of somehow brewing sake was like being one with nature. Right. And in many ways that is true. But at when you look at little snippets of production, sometimes it does feel like you're just doing everything in your power as humanly possible to fight nature mm. you know like the the moromi wants to go up and you're like no 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 no, please come down um you're adding ice and coolants and whatnot yeah. um just so that it can go the course run the course of how you design it to be and i just thought you know now looking back on my brewery days and i laugh um, and i think it's a bit um ironic how in my attempt to try to be with one with nature, I was just trying everything to kind of go against it. But um, 
I think that's also the fun of really getting in the behind the scenes of brewing. Mm. It's a it's a symbiotic relationship. You it know is, what I mean? yeah. Between the brewer and the and the sake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it is natural in that sense. They're both benefiting one another, and it's a relationship. Yeah. Nice. We are so spot on for time. This is fantastic. Awesome. Okay. Um, Weird. Oliver, anything you're excited about right now? Anything you're working on that you want our listeners to know about? You got events going on back in the UK or new products coming on online or anything that you, <laughs> any, any big news you want to spring? So it's first uh, year, year I, uh, on the show. There's, there's, I mean, there's, I'm always working on bits and bobs in, in the UK, but some of the things I'm quite excited about, so I'm excited about the UK market, the London market, actually, because we talked about the kind of, you know, core of people expanding and this sort of stuff. But the UK market, if you look at it in terms of just global markets, the 13th biggest market in the world. And its population is significantly smaller than most of the other, you know, right. the USA, um, China, um, and uh, so on and so forth. You know, Australia, much bigger um, populations. But what's interesting about the, the UK is it's got a very high value to it as well. So the sake they're bringing over has a, has a very high value. We've surpassed the US now in value. Um, so the price per bottle, mm. um, which is interesting. I'm very proud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So out of, <laughs> yeah, out of Europe, we're, the, we're not the, the largest. For some bizarre reason, Italy is the largest. No Italian I know that works in the industry understands that. I think it might be a port and then they're shipping it elsewhere. Yeah. Um, but uh, we're the largest market with the highest value. Yeah. You know what I mean? So the most kind of mature consumer market so i'm excited about that I'm excited about how people are beginning are expanding their understanding of sake and demanding new pro, um, products i'm excited in japan about the turn away from the tokute meisho mm. um, kind of classification system i think it's still useful and possibly shouldn't be abandoned but i you know that's exciting yeah. the, that development um i'm excited about people really specializing in certain rice strains or something like that you know um, I read in, uh, you know, John, quick plug for John Gauntner's new industry news oh, thing, yes. yeah, which yeah. is great. Yeah, totally yeah. recommend subscribing to that. I must read. Um, but I, I read it first there and then I confirmed it with the brewer. Um, uh, again, Gozenshu, they're going to be doing, if they can get the rice, but they're going to be, the, you know, they're specializing in Omachi and they, they're going for, you know, the highest classification of uh, Sake, sake rice, which yeah. is almost exclusively Yamada Nishiki and right. almost never Omachi because it's really difficult to, right. to get that yeah. classification. But they're trying to encourage uh, um, yeah. rice growers to get that classification, to produce rice of quality enough to get that classification yeah. and then make sake from it, yeah. which is a really exciting yeah. thing, it you is. Know, focusing it is. on a particular rice strain. So I think that's, that's exciting. Nice. Nice. Well, Oliver, where can, where can people find you if they want to follow you and keep up on your travels while you're here and what Tengu Sake is doing? So um, immediately, uh, you know, social media channels is all very simple. It's all Tengu Sake, one word, T-E-N-G-U-S-A-K-E. So at Tengu Sake on both Instagram and Twitter and then just forward slash Tengu Sake at Facebook. And um, I also have a blog on my website, which I, you know, isn't as regular as things like Instagram, but um, it has my ramblings and musings on there so you can check that out as well awesome excellent excellent well i just like to say what a personal pleasure it's been to be able to uh, interview oliver and you know uh, learn a bit more actually that i didn't i learned some things i didn't know so well, um, thank you so much yeah. for inviting me it's been lovely to be here and uh, waffle on and drink sake yeah 
the, the journey continues. Absolutely. Indeed it always does. does. <laughs> All over again, thank you so much for coming out here. Thank, thank you. you. Appreciate thank you guys. it. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening to this uh, interview with Oliver Hilton Johnson of Tengusaki. And we will be returning soon with another podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, and uh, follow us. You can follow us at, at Sake on Air on whatever it is you follow things and people and all different kinds of entities on. Uh, if you have any questions, questions at sakeonair.com. And if you would like to leave us a review, please do. It helps us more than you can imagine. Um, this has been another episode of Sake on Air, made possible with the help of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and broadcast from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in Tokyo. And we're out. Cheers. Cheers, come by.